Matthew chapter 27, uh, we're talking about the crucifixion of Christ. And I put a little timeline there, breaking up the Jewish trial and the Roman trial in your notes. And you can look at that as you have a chance and just kind of lays out for you uh, how this whole thing kind of went down. And I want to read for us once again our text of Scripture this morning, Matthew chapter 27. I'll be reading verses 27 to 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him. They stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those that passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. As we look at this this scripture of, uh, before us here this morning, we, we got into this last week a little bit about the crucifixion of Christ. The point of our conversation last week, the knowing wicked, the, the, um, uh, or the ignorant wicked, excuse me, the callous soldiers. And we mentioned a little bit about these soldiers, and we talked about how they mocked Christ and about how this crucifixion uh, process went. And I just want to remind us today a little bit that even though these soldiers were actually mocking him through this whole process. Okay, they were ignorant of really who who Christ was. And uh, they came from another region. They probably heard his name once or twice. And so that that first group that we looked at last week, the ignorant wicked, the the people who are just kind of ignorantly callous to Christ. They don't know anything about him. And yet, just because there's evil in their heart, which is in the heart of every man and every woman, they... uh, derided him and mocked him and eventually crucified him. And we talked about the game that they played with Christ. They would take him and they put a crown of thorns on his head and they gave him a scepter and and a reed as a scepter and they bowed down before him and they were mocking him as the king. And by this time he was probably pretty much beaten to a pulp and his eyes were probably swollen and his face was cut, his back was ripped open from all the scourging that went on earlier and uh, even before that, the, the religious, at the religious trial, they were beating him up and uh, mocking him. And so at this point in time, he doesn't look much like a king. <laughs> he just doesn't. But I want to remind us that in Revelation 
13. It shows us Jesus Christ coming out of heaven wearing a robe of majesty. And that robe will be spotted with blood. But it's not going to be his blood. It's going to be the blood of his enemies. Um, One day Jesus will return also wearing a royal crown. And that's different than the crown described here that they put on his head. The crown of thorns is, a, is in, in the original language, Stephanos. It's, it's just a, a crown that someone would have. But when he comes back, in Revelation, it uses a different word. The royal crown is diadem, a crown of glory. And it's far different from a crown of thorns. And he'll, he'll wear many crowns, Revelation 19.12 says, because Jesus alone will be the king. And it also tells us that one day he will have a scepter, but it's not going to be a reed that they're going to give him. Um, he will rule with a rod of iron, it says. And he will bring instant judgment on the unbelieving world. And that one day, beloved, is going to happen in the future. Psalm 2.4 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. So now they're mocking Christ. They're mocking the Lord. One day, the tables will be turned. And one day, Christ will return in glory. When you think of crucifixion, you know, I I really prayed about showing a short video at the end of the service today put to a song that we're going to sing. And, you know, after much prayer and just watching that video, it so depicts graphically what Christ went through. Um, I decided not to show it. And one of the reasons I decided not to show it is because I was called back to the text at which I'm studying. And as I looked at places where the Bible talks about how horrific crucifixion is, I didn't find any. I didn't find anywhere where it talked about crucifixion. It just mentions the word. He was crucified or they crucified him. It doesn't go into all the the grisly details of how that takes place. I'm not saying we don't need to understand that. I think we do. But on the other hand, I think that we need to realize that it's not just the physical suffering that Christ went through on the cross. I mean, to be crucified was a common thing. He wasn't the only one that was crucified. He wasn't the only one they probably beat up in the process. That's what they did. They were there to torture people that came against Rome. And so when you stop and you think about the crucifixion, and if you've seen some of the images from The Passion of the Christ, that movie that was put out several years ago, I mean, it was very moving. And yet, spiritually, it almost left a void in the hearts of the people that went to see that. Okay, yeah, great, Jesus suffered and died. That's wonderful. What does that mean? Somehow the movie didn't go into all that. It's specifically focused on just the the passion of the Christ, the suffering that Christ went through. And yet the Bible, other than drawing out the wickedness of the people that, that were going through this process with him, doesn't really point to that that much. I mean, yeah, it talks about the crown of thorns. It talks about them slapping him up a little bit and and scourging him. And all those processes we know are gory and horrible. But the Bible itself, Scripture, God, somehow 
didn't seem necessary for us to go into all the grisly details in the context of Scripture. I mean, when you look at a cross, basically the cross would be laid down on the, on the, the uh, dirt there, and they would lay the victim on the, the main beam, and they would take his feet, and they would pitch him at an angle, and they would drive a spike through the middle of the feet, and then they would lay his hands out, and they would drive a spike in each hand, and then they would literally tie them as well because they couldn't just be held up there with the nails. They would, the body would fall off. And then they would have to lift this hoist, this, this cross up while, with, while the person's crucified on it. And then they would basically drop it into this hole that was dug two or three feet. And it would drop down. I mean, I can't imagine being up there, nails through your hands, uh, going through the whole process physically up to that point. And then, you know, they would, they would allow the, the victim just to kind of hang there. And it wasn't the bleeding that necessarily killed them. It wasn't all the other stuff that they went through. It, basically, they suffocated to death because they couldn't hold themselves up anymore. And they would, they would fall down and it would crush their, their lung capacity. And it went on sometimes for hours and hours and hours. It wasn't meant to be a quick death. One doctor says this. He says, at this point, another phenomenon occurred as the arms fatigued. Great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. And with these cramps comes the inability to push yourself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it can't be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in his lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps subside. He would gasp short breaths of air, hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting joint-rendering cramps, intermittent partial asphyxia, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down on the rough timber. A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with fluid. And he begins, and it begins to compress his heart. And this leads to death. Agonizing death. You know, when we saw how these soldiers went about mocking Christ and literally crucifying him that way, we mentioned at the end of the last service that even though we're going to look at each one of these groups of people, it's interesting how God um, shows his grace. He extends his grace to each, each group that we're going to talk about. And even the ignorant, wicked soldiers, the first group that we talked about last week, and we mentioned this at the end of the service, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four says, When the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus, verse 36 tells us that the Roman soldiers put him on the cross and they sat down and they watched him. And it says, when they saw the earthquake that happens, and we're going to get into this in the coming weeks, and those things that were done, it says, they greatly feared, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. In Luke 23, 47, it says, when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God. And he said, certainly this man was a righteous man. I mean, it's not a far stretch to understand that maybe this centurion came to saving grace. 
even the centurion that was there as he was being crucified, God was gracious to him. God's grace extended to those who crucified him. Well, today I want us to look at a second group of people, the knowing wicked, these thieves on each side of him. Uh, It says, then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Remember, these thieves were not just common criminals. Okay, these were, this was basically a little gang. There was three of them, Barabbas being one of them probably. These guys that were hanging here with Jesus were probably in for the same thing Barabbas was. They probably had a gang that went around and and, uh, beat up people and stole things and killed people. And it said that they they stole certain things. They were thieves. And these weren't common criminals. Um, In the original language, there's two words for stealing. Klepti, which means like where we get the word kleptomaniac, kind of a petty thief, somebody who goes around and just... uh, steal stuff. But then there was another word that refers to bandit or a plundering robber, a man who would kill if he had to, to get what he wanted. And that's the word that's used here with these. These were the worst of criminals. And two of these guys were crucified with Christ because Jesus took the place of the other one, Barabbas, who was now free. And it says that they were, uh, in, in Matthew twenty-seven forty-three that they were crucified with him and they, they heaped the same insults on him as the Jewish leaders. Uh, they probably knew something about Jesus by this time because they were obviously part of the, the, uh, the, the Jewish society here. Maybe they had occasion to hear him even speak. We don't know. Um, he, they probably knew more about him than his... Uh, than the soldiers did who came from a different region. I mean, the ignorant pagans were not the only ones who rejected Christ and took pleasure in his execution. There was others as well. And here are these bandits. And they had no, no thoughts about righteousness, no thought about morality um, or godliness, anything like that. It was just they saw something, they wanted it, and they would take it even if, they meant, if it meant they had to kill somebody to do it. And, you know, there's, there's people like that even today in our society. There's people that have little, no thought of morality. They'll, they'll murder somebody for a pair of sneakers and not think anything of it. Um, and so these groups that we're looking at back at the time of Christ are still with us today. Those who are ignorantly wicked, those who are knowingly wicked, and... What's interesting is even in this group of thieves, we can see where God's grace extended to them as a group, as an individual. In Luke 23, 39, it says one of the the malefactors who were uh, uh, crucified that that hailed, uh, that railed at him, at Jesus, saying, if thou be the Christ, save yourself and us. It says the other one rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? We're under the same condemnation, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, Verily I say to you, today you will be with me, what? In paradise. All right? In paradise. Here is this, this knowingly wicked individual who's up there mocking Christ the whole time. 
But at a point in time, he comes to his senses and God draws his heart to the Savior and he looks to his left or his right, who knows what side he was on, and he sees Christ and he realizes this is an innocent man. Maybe he knew something of his ministry. And even though he had thrown insults of blasphemy on Christ, eventually he cried out. I mean, that shows me that it's never, ever too late, right, for someone to come to Christ, ever. Don't ever think that. Maybe you've been praying about that relative who's just hardened in their heart harder and harder every time you mention Christ. Don't give up hope. You don't know how God is going to draw them. You don't know how God is going to work in their life. You just continue to live for Christ. You continue to pray for that individual. Because God may very well be gracious to them even at the very last moment. We don't know. But he was truly in this case. And then verses 39 to 40, we see a different group of people. We see the crowd 39 to 40, it says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. See, remember, the crucifixion wasn't necessarily, as you see in the movies, up on top of a mountain. All right? There is a place called Golgotha, and there is a real place there, but it's right above a road. And so more than likely, the Roman soldiers would crucify somebody right alongside of the main highway where you would be able to walk right by them. I mean, just like, like this, you would walk right by that individual hanging on a cross there. And they did that for a variety of reasons. One was to send a message. You mess with the Roman government, you come against the Roman government, you're going to be just like this bow, hanging on the cross. And some historians say that they they executed upwards of 30,000 Jews that way that were crucified. Christ wasn't the only one who was ever crucified. So I think that's why the Bible doesn't so much specify so many details about his crucifixion and the whole process he went through. Because that's just a little piece of the puzzle. You see this crowd, this careless crowd who represents people who hear Christ's words. And they may even invite him to be part of their life. (laughs) But eventually they turn away. Remember, this was just days after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Monday. And what were they doing on Monday? Hosanna. Glory to God in the highest. Welcome the Messiah. They were laying down palm branches and their clothes. And they were having a wonderful celebration because they thought Jesus was coming to town to really take over and defeat the Roman government and to rid them of that that burden that's on the the Jews' shoulders of that time. And so they, they welcomed him. They welcomed him as a hero. They thought, man, this is gonna, this is, he's going to go right to Fort Antonius and th- overthrow the whole, whole Roman government. And then we'll be free. But he didn't do that. <laughs> he went to the temple. Went and he taught. And they're waiting the whole week. Well, as it gets on longer and longer in the week, the crowd is beginning to realize, this guy's not going to do anything for us. What's he going to do for us? Look at him. Look at him. He's up there on that cross. He can't help anybody. Can't even help himself. And so this careless crowd, they really, uh, their enthusiasm just went right down to the bottom rung. And they looked at their king, their Messiah, hanging on a cross. 
And they began to, it says, they began to deride him as they passed by. Wagging their heads. Almost in disgust. Yeah, this is the Messiah, right? Give me a break. And you look at what they they say. They speak to Christ. They look up into his bloodied face and they say, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. In other words, they're kind of ticked off. They're burned. They're, they're saying, wait a minute, we didn't sign up for this. You said you were going to, you know, the kingdom was coming and all this. Well, what is this? We follow you now. We're going to be hanging right next to you. So they begin to mock him in that way. You're the king of the Jews. You're supposed to be our king. You said you could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Obviously, did Jesus say that? Yes, he did. Obviously, he was speaking of his, his body, not the literal temple. That word there where it says that they reviled him. All right. It has the idea that they kept on doing it. It wasn't like they just walked by once and said, huh, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. No, they just kept on doing it. It's almost like they're circling his cross, yelling these things out at him. Blasphemies and defaming his character. And they're, they're doing it in kind of a taunting way. What are you going to do to us? Come on down. Come on down. What's wrong? You can't get off the cross? A little uncomfortable up there, isn't it? Psalm 22, 7 to 8 predicted all this. It says, all they who see me laugh, laugh me to scorn. Who see me, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip. They shake their head, saying he trusted in the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. I mean, they weren't trying to fulfill any scripture, but they did exactly what scripture said. And Jesus did say that he would rebuild the temple. He was speaking of his body at that point in time. John two nineteen. And so the, the leaders really perverted one of Jesus' statements and they used it against him, claiming that he was going to literally destroy the temple to try to cause a problem for him. And he also claimed to be God. And they bring that out. They say there, if you are the son of God, and that's what he claimed back in Matthew 26, when Caiaphas said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether thou be the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said unto him, thou hast said it. See, he was condemned for clearly, boldly stating the truth. (laughs) He didn't lie about it. He said exactly what was true. And now the leaders and the crowd kind of turn on him and they they begin to share all these, these claims with him. And they begin to mock him and attack him. They even taunt him, come down from the cross. If you're God, why couldn't you do that? If you ever talk to somebody about your faith and they say, 
things like, well, you know, if, if God would come and prove himself to me, or, boy, if this happened, then huh, you don't want to go there. <laughs> God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody, beloved. That doesn't mean he's not true. As a matter of fact, remember with the parable, with the, the, the folks in Abraham's bosom and some of them, the rich man and Lazarus, and he said, boy, if you just go back and you tell these people, they'll believe. And he said, they won't even believe because they didn't believe the prophets. You know, that doesn't work. The idea that God has to come down and prove himself to us before we'll believe in him. And that's exactly what they were almost doing here. The same crowd was worshiping him on Monday. And now it's Friday and they're hurling blasphemies on him. He didn't fulfill their expectation. I want to ask you, when you come to Christ for salvation, what do you expect? I mean, there's a lot of people today that teach a lot of things. As far as expectations, there's a lot of people that come to church or come to Christ to have their felt needs met. Well, Jesus will make me richer and he'll make my marriage better and he'll make my kids obedient and, and he'll help me with my job and he'll bless me, bless me, bless me. And so, yeah, I'm going to do this. That's the wrong reason. That's the wrong reason to come to Christ. I mean, there's a lot of people who've been to church Maybe they've been raised in church. Maybe they know the message of salvation if you were to ask them. Maybe they've even gone into some form of Christian training. Maybe they've even made a profession of faith. But when it comes right down to it and all is done, they're not interested anymore. They fall away. Because they're only interested in what Jesus can do for them immediately. To satisfy them immediately. And when he doesn't deliver, they turn their backs and they go the other way. That kind of person was never saved, beloved. Because they had a wrong idea of what it meant to come to Christ. I mean, the reason we come to Christ, the reason that we acknowledge that Jesus is our Savior is because we need a what? A Savior. We don't need a thicker wallet. We don't need a bigger house or better kids or a better marriage. No, we need to be forgiven of our sin. We need to realize that if we come to Christ for any other reason, it's a wrong motivation. It's a wrong reason. He calls himself the Messiah, the chosen one, the one who is going to provide a way out of our sin, a way of forgiveness. See, people want more than that. They want more than Jesus Christ. They're not much interested in him. They're interested in all the things that come along with him. And that's what a lot of followers of Christ, even back in his time, think about it. I mean, Jesus and the 12 disciples had crowds coming after him all the time, multitudes of people. Popular. It was a popular thing to follow Christ until people started being crucified and started <laughs> having their heads cut off for following Christ. Then all of a sudden, wow, 
you really understand who the followers of Christ are. Really, these, these, this, this careless crowd is, is really a bunch of traitors. They're people that, that maybe even profess Christ at one time, and yet just because you profess Christ doesn't mean you possess Christ. There's a lot of people who have grown up in church, and when they were little, they raised their hand, or they did this, or they said a prayer, or whatever, and now their life doesn't even resemble anything like a Christian life. Talk to people all the time about Christ, and they'll say, oh, I used to go to church. You used to go to church? Where'd you go? And they mention a good Bible teaching church somewhere. I don't go anymore. Well, what happened? Well, you know, people there, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. I'm thinking, wow, how sad. How sad is that? It's so important for us to realize that the reason we come to Christ is because he is our only hope. He is our only way out of our sin. We'll be lost in our sin if it wasn't for the work of Christ on Calvary, if it wasn't for us coming to him, acknowledging his work instead of our own. Last week we talked at a had a little Bible study at, over there at Woodside and one of the dear ladies spent around a little time talking to her afterwards and kind of realized she was in a religion. <laughs> she was very proud of her religion. And I thought, boy, how sad that a person could come to a place where you're open up God's word and try to encourage people. And yet, because they're so sold out to a certain religion or a certain church, that the words you're saying, even though they're true, it's almost like they fall on deaf ears. They well, that's not what our church teaches. You know, it's sad. And yet, God has to do that work in their heart. Turn over to Acts chapter 2 because this is kind of a exciting portion of scripture anyway. It's the beginning of the church. But I want to show you something here in Acts chapter 2. Because God's grace not only extended to the soldiers and to the thieves, but he also extended his grace to this crowd of people. This crowd of people who were Hypocritical in their, in their acknowledgement of Christ. And, and now they're at a point at the crucifixion of Christ where they're, they're mocking him along with everybody else. In verse 14, Peter begins to preach a sermon. And I want to read this sermon for you at Pentecost. It says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them. And he said, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you are, have supposed, since it is only the third hour of the day. They were under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it says. And they thought they were drunk. But it says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters shall you prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and shall, they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, 
before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's pronouncing God's pending judgment. And then he says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to bring a sermon about Christ. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. And in verse 29, he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he had not been abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. What he's saying is basically David wasn't talking about himself. He's talking about the Messiah. Because we can go to David's tomb and see that. Verse 32, then this Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, look at what he says, whom you crucified. So he points it out very clear, makes a good sound argument, foundation, and then lowers the boom on him. You're the the folks that crucified him. You're the ones that allowed this to happen. And no doubt in this crowd that Peter was speaking to, there were actual people who were standing there deriding Christ at his crucifixion. And it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, look at, they were cut to the heart. What's that mean? It means they were convicted. They were convicted. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40, in many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. 
So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. See, God doesn't limit his grace to only the good people in our mind. No, he extended his grace to a callous soldier. He extended it to a, a thief that deserved exactly what he got, and yet he got something totally different. He received the grace of God. And here you see where, where God extended that grace that was purchased through Christ to members of this careless crowd that were standing before him, even as he was going through all that suffering, calling him names, mocking him. See, God's grace knows no limits. It knows no limits. God in his sovereign grace saved 3,000 souls out of that crowd that rejected Christ, that screamed for his crucifixion. And that continues even to this day. That continues even to this day. The last group here are the religious wicked. We see them in Matthew 27. Look at verse 41. It says, So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I mean, this is really the most hypocritical group of the bunch. These are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. If anybody should have realized this was the Messiah, it would have been them. They were the caretakers of God's word. And they were really the lowest level here of blasphemers. They were the religious hypocrites. And you could just see them dressed in all their, their outward garments and all this stuff. And they, they, they were there to represent God. They were supposed to know the truth. Too. They were supposed to be pure. They were supposed to be godly and, and virtuous. And yet, it says that they hated Christ. I mean, even, even Pilate understood this. That they were just delivering him up to, because they didn't like him. Well, who were these people? The chief priests were kind of the upper level of priests who served in the temple ministries. And it was kind of a privilege to be part of that. But it also says they had scribes there. And the scribes were almost like lawyers of our day. They were like experts on the law. They were authorities on the law. And it also mentions elders. And they were men who were maybe up in their maturity, up in their age a little bit. And and they they were looked to for wisdom. And all these groups made up a, a larger group, which was called the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel. I mean, these are the the religious elite, you might say. And they apparently are supposed to know everything there is to know about God. They know a lot more than the common people do. They're supposed to. And yet, we find them here mocking Christ. One thing that's interesting is you see where the crowd probably looked up to Christ on the cross and talked to Christ They literally spoke to Christ. But you notice the religious leaders don't do that. They don't speak to Christ. They wouldn't stoop so low as to even address this man from Nazareth. So they talk to the crowd. They're trying to still incite all the hatred against Christ. 
And it says they mocked him. In verse 42, it says, he saved others. He can't save himself. They're not saying this to Jesus. They're saying it to the crowd right in the face of Christ. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And then we'll believe him. Once again, that's a lie. If Jesus would have gotten off that cross and came down and said, okay, let's talk, they still wouldn't have believed him. Why? Because the, the heart is desperately wicked. And that's, that's the point here, is these men, these religious men, saw the works that Christ did. They confronted him about it. Time and time again, they confronted him about supernaturally healing people, giving back the blind, sight to the blind, raising the dead. All these things were going on. The lame were walking. And they didn't say that Jesus never did those things. They couldn't say that because they saw it with their own eyes. Just to show you the depth of their depravity and their blindness, their spiritual blindness was even though they saw Christ do supernatural things and they walked away from his teaching sessions going, man, I've never heard somebody like that teach before. Pride in their heart wouldn't let them acknowledge it because they were in control. They were the ones that were ruling in the religious thing, not this guy from Nazareth. He's not going to come along here and rain on our parade. And you know what? Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in our world that feel that same way. It comes down to an issue of control. I'm not going to give up control to some God that I don't even see. Some man that apparently died for my sin in my place. But that's exactly what's needed. And you can bargain with God all you want. Well, God, if you just do this, then I'll believe. No, you won't. Because once again, it's your motivation. You're coming for the wrong reason. You'll put up another straw man. I mean, I've talked to people long enough to realize, you know, some of them, you talk to them about your faith and you're trying to share Christ with them. They say, well, I just got one question for you. And they ask the question. If you can answer this question, then I'll listen to you. And you answer the question. And what do they do? They come up with another question. See, they they never end. It never ends. And you just got to go to God and you need to pray that God would be gracious to people like that. Because these folks were not only hypocritical, but you see the hatefulness in their words. I mean, they're literally mocking the God that they're supposed to serve. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. I mean, it's almost like they're, they're tempting God to do something here. And that's... You don't want to be in that, that situation. But you know what? If you turn over to Acts, once again, you see God's grace extended to even someone from this group, as hard-hearted as they are. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Look at verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. By this time, the church was beginning to flourish. More people were being come, coming to Christ on a daily basis. And it says in verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase. Okay, it went out and out and out. 
And it says, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Well, that's great. And then it says this, and a great many, what? Of the priests became obedient to what? To the faith. See, I believe wholeheartedly that somehow God saved some of those those wicked religious people that were mocking Christ. Somehow they walked away from that day thinking, okay, he's finally gone. Finally, he's dead. Now we're back in control. Won't have to worry about him anymore. But you know what? Somehow God moved in their heart. Maybe it was that evening when they were laying down. And as they closed their eyes, they remembered the innocent man that they crucified. Man that didn't deserve it. Man that hung on the cross. Maybe they began to play back all the things that they saw this man do. <laughs> all the miracles. All his teaching. Maybe they began to, to feel a little bit of conviction. And maybe it was at that time that God, through the power of his spirit and the power of his word, spoke to their heart and said, yeah, the man you crucified was the Christ. He was my only son, my gift to you. And at that point in time, maybe they repented. Maybe they confessed their sin to God and said, God, save me. See, that's what has to happen. That's what has to happen to every individual on the face of the earth. I mean, all the unbelievers basically fit into one of those four categories. Either they're ignorant, they're knowledgeable, they're fickle, or they're even religious. But the one thing is, we know that they all are, even though they have different characteristics, they're all guilty. Zechariah 12.10 even says that someday Israel will look on him whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Do you know one day Jews are going to come to Christ and they're going to understand that he was the Savior? Hebrews 6.6 says those who reject Christ crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. See, beloved, the message today basically boils down to one, one simple sentence. Either you stand with the believers, you stand with the people that have been touched by God's grace, or you stand with those who crucified Christ. You stand with the unbelievers. You stand with the, the, those willful, ignorant unbelievers. There's no middle ground. The amazing thing is, is that Christ even... On the cross, regarding his own crucifixion, he made this statement in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for what? They don't even know what they're doing. They don't even know what they're doing. I'm here to tell you, you know what? Maybe today you're here and you're saying, you know what? I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> I've been running from God for so long. I don't even know why. Maybe it's because the church of your youth didn't measure up to what you expected. I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is a real person. And he died a real death. 
And he was raised on the third day to show his victory over sin and death. And I know in my own personal life, there was a time when I came face to face with Christ. And I realized that, you know what, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. Even though I'm trying, I'm trying to be a good person. It's not working out. Because there's something called sin that's deep in our heart and our soul. And the only way that that can be rid of is through the sacrifice that Christ freely offered up for us. Sometimes Jesus, you talk to people about Christ and they say, well, my Jesus isn't that way. My God wouldn't do that. That's, that's so sad because you can't invent your own Jesus and you can't invent your own God. There's only one Jesus. There's only one God. And there's only one way of salvation. And that's through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that you would move and work in our hearts. Help us to remember the sacrifice that you laid down for us through the perfect Lamb of, Lamb of God, the, your son. Father, when we think about the physical suffering of your dear son, our Savior, we're very thankful. But Lord, we also think of the spiritual suffering that he went through. Someone who never knew sin, who was perfect in every way. And yet the Bible says that he became sin for us. He took upon himself all the sin that was ever committed by all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him. And then he cries out from the cross, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, Father. I don't understand that kind of grace, to be honest. I don't understand why God would save someone like me. All I know is he did, and I'm thankful. I want to do everything within my power to love and serve him with the time we have here on this earth. I pray today, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Savior, you have yet to put your faith and trust in him. You have yet to, to extend that control to him. He created you. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what your needs are. He knows what your wants are. He knows what problems you face, what victories you're blessed with. He knows all that. He created you. And yet he still realizes that you, you need to be forgiven for your sin, and he freely offers that. I pray that you'd cry out to him today, Lord, save me. Be merciful to me, a sinner, Lord. Help me to understand my need Show me that Jesus is truly the only way that leads to salvation. You cry out to him in that way from a humble heart, from a heart that realizes that you, you need God. He'll answer that prayer. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he'll do it. He'll give you the wisdom to make the decisions you need to make. Bring you to that point of contact with the risen Savior. Father, we thank you and we 
We pray that you would bless us throughout the rest of the day, Lord. Help us to remember as believers as we go out into this lost and dying world that there's a world out there that needs a message of hope, a message of encouragement. And, Father, I pray that you would continue to just allow your truth to rule and reign in our lives and through our lips. We'd see many come to know you as Savior. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.